Please turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, and our text begins at verse 24. Mark 5, beginning with verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. In one sense, this story shouldn't even be here. Well, not that there's anything wrong with the text. It's perfect. <laughs> the Holy Spirit has preserved this story for us, and it's right where it should be. But this woman shouldn't have been there for a number of reasons. Jesus, uh, at this point in his ministry, had been teaching and uh, moving about Galilee. He had become famous in, on that side of the Sea of Galilee, around his hometown and home region. And throngs of people were coming to hear him teach. And even larger throngs of, of sick people were coming to him to be healed. And even uh, people possessed of demons came and Jesus would cast out the demons. And so his popularity was growing. Uh, if you uh, look back at the beginning of Mark chapter 5, uh, G Jesus had become so pressed by the crowds on that side of the lake uh, that he had to get in a boat and, and he went, went across to the other side, to the region of the Gerasenes. And there's the wonderful story there of how he healed a man who was possessed with a legion of demons. And uh, after that, he crosses back to this side of the lake. And as soon as his boat lands, uh, Jarius, a leader of the synagogue there, comes to him and a group of his friends and his daughter, his little daughter is, is gravely ill, almost on the point of death. In fact, before the chapter ends, the girl dies and Jesus resurrects her. But when Jesus lands on this side of the lake, he's on his way to Jairus's house to heal his daughter. 
And so this unnamed woman shows up in, in the scene, shows up in the text, shows up in the story. She's really not supposed to be there. She, she's an interruption. Jesus is on his way somewhere else to heal someone else. And this woman, in fact, she's unnamed. Her name is never given in the story. She's simply known as the, the woman with the issue of blood. Man, I hope when I die, my obituary can at least get my name right. Or, you know, or, or if you tell my story, just, you know, uh, just that guy. Well, well, oh, the guy that stood up there with Dr. Owens and talked about the Tour de France. You know, hey, just my name. Her name isn't in the story. Well, her name isn't, maybe isn't in the story because she's not even on the the, the playbill here. She's not on the, the dance card. She's not on the batter's lineup for this. She wasn't expected. And this woman comes, she's not supposed to be there for a number of reasons, but chief of which is that she is unclean. The scripture says that she had had this hemorrhaging. The old uh, English versions say an, an issue of blood. This woman had some sort of a disease that had caused a, an unnatural interruption of her normal menstrual cycle. And so she just, she, uh, we don't know that she bled every day, but it, it, was a, it wasn't a normal menstrual cycle. For 12 years, she would have this ongoing bleeding that was not only extremely painful. I've been told by physicians that any of the number of underlying conditions, uh, endometriosis, uh, uh, uterine fibroid tumors, there are all kinds of things that could have caused this bleeding, none of which were very comfortable. They were all painful. But perhaps the most painful thing is that it estranged her from her family and the society around her, for she was unclean. Uh, she could not be around other Jewish people. Uh, she couldn't carry out her normal duties as a wife or mother if she was a wife or duty. We're not told about her. So she is unwell, and for 12 years she suffers. She's unwell. She's unclean. She's untouchable. She's unnamed, and she shows up in the story unexpectedly. But I love this woman. I love what she does. I love her faith, and I love what the Lord did for her. And I'm hoping this morning that you might put yourself in the place of this woman. Uh, I hope that there's not a lady here in, in our chapel who suffers from the same thing that this woman suffered from. But I hope that all of us will see that whatever it is that we struggle with, whether it's, it's a, an illness or whether it's uh, the need for wisdom or whether it's the fear of something or uh, whatever it is that you need this morning, I'm hoping this morning that you will join me and put yourself in the place of this woman who reaches out and touches Jesus and receives from him a cleansing and a comfort that she had from no other place. I was first drawn to this story this summer because I was working on some tools to help our preaching students in text-driven preaching and helping them to look into the text and find things there that might help them in structuring sermons. And uh, our dean, Dr. Allen, is a, a linguist, and he's always pushing us to take a look at discourse analysis and all these fancy tools that linguists have for understanding language. 
And so uh, I started playing around with visual filters and logos. And so I created these visual filters that would put different colors behind the different uh, moods of my Greek verbs. Oh, I wish I could. I should have brought a picture. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Fire up my screen and there it is in color. And one of the things that does for you, that it shows you if you've ever got a, a group of verbs that are in the same mood uh, stacked up together, the, the color makes it really pop out. And so this passage popped out to me because here in Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 25, there is the longest consecutive chain of participles in the Greek New Testament. There are seven of them. And you're thinking to yourself, well, whoopee doo, what does that mean? Well, those of you guys who are Greek students know that often participles are used in the Greek text to, to background things. They're not part of the action, but they're telling you something about something else that is part of the action. If I tell you I've brought some baked beans to the church supper, I'm not baking anything right there. I'm not doing anything, but I am telling you that the beans have been baked the past participle is an adjective to describe the beans I'm trying to get you to eat. And so it is often in the Greek text that these, uh, especially these circumstantial participles are used to give us background about actors in the scene. And this woman has this stack of participles that describe her circumstances, describe her condition. And that's the first thing I want us to look at. Her condition was a terrible one. The first of these participles says that she's the woman who had the issue of blood. And that's painful enough, and it makes her unclean, and it makes her untouchable, and it estranges her from the Jewish society around her. But then, on top of that, there comes the second one that says that she's the woman who had suffered much under many physicians. Now, because we're going to have lunch in a little bit, and this is a, I, I'm not going to lay out for you some of the things that doctors and students of the history of medicine told me that they might be doing to this woman, but what the physicians were doing for her didn't help. Not only did it not help, but it simply made it worse. Some of the remedies that might be recommended to cure this bleeding problem would in themselves be painful. And so the next part of simple says that she is the woman who grew no better or became no better, but she is the woman who grew worse. So the first five participles here describing her condition, describing her circumstances, they paint a vivid picture of how miserable this woman's life was and how hopeless because one of the participles says that she had spent everything that she had. Imagine that you were sick. Imagine that you were sick with a disease that caused you to daily live in pain and a disease that cut you off from everyone around you that made you unclean and untouchable. Imagine that this was a disease that also prevented you from attending public worship services and, and you're, ju you're just completely isolated. And you go to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor for 12 years, a decade and change. You seek relief from this and you get no better, get no better. You simply grow worse and worse and worse until finally you can't see any more doctors because you've spent your last dime. That's the picture painted from this, for this woman. 
And then we come to the last two participles and we start to see a a glimmer of hope before the last two participles say that she is the woman who heard about Jesus and the woman who came up behind him in the crowd. What had she heard about Jesus? Well, we're not told, but if you flip back over to Mark chapter 3, in verse 10, it, it says of the early part of Jesus' ministry on that side of the Sea of Galilee, it says, uh, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Are those the reports that this lady heard? Probably so, because Mark mentions them. And who told this woman about Jesus? We don't know. And let me stop for a moment, give you a parenthesis here. This is a great advertisement for evangelism. Because this woman came to Jesus because somebody told her about Jesus. Somebody told her about the young rabbi that even that the demons proclaimed was the son of God. Told her about the young rabbi that, that had the, the power over nature and power over disease. The power to write and fix the things that were broken in this fallen world. Somebody had told her about Jesus and what he could do. And so she came to him because she had heard. You never know where your testimony, you never know where the seeds of the gospel. I, have, I pass out little gospels of John to people everywhere I go. And sometimes I get the privilege of winning somebody to Christ. But most of the time I don't. Most of the time I get to plant a seed. And sometimes I might later find out how my seed was harvested where I plant and somebody else waters and somebody else harvests. And and some of those, I'll never know until we get to heaven what happened. But I plant those seeds because you never know what your seed is going to do in the life of a person you share the good news with. So somebody, she heard the good news about Jesus from somebody. And so we have these seven participles describing her condition. Well, that's the first part of the story. She also comes not only with a condition that had brought her to crisis, but she comes with a confidence. She had heard enough about Jesus that when she comes up behind him, look there in verse 28, because that's the only subjunctive that's here in this passage. You know what subjunctives do. Those are things that, well, they're they're not indicatives. They aren't things that are. They're, They're things that could be or might be, or sometimes things that we wish were. And this is a conditional here. There's that, that little conditional conjunction aeon that's in front of a subjunctive verb there. And that's used to, to suggest something that is a future potentiality. In other words, this woman was telling herself something that she believed was a, a future potentiality. Now, some conditionals are arguments. If, the, if P, then Q. P, therefore Q. That's an argument. Uh, some subjunctives, some, some constructions like this, some conditionals are counterfactuals. Jesus said, if you guys knew, really knew what Moses and the prophets were saying, you'd know what I'm saying too. That's a counterfactual. But this is one, this is one of those conditionals with a subjunctive that is infused with hope. It's something that this woman believed could be, that might be, that she wanted to be, that she hoped to be. That's what this subjunctive is doing. 
if only I can get to him. She didn't know if she could. That's why it's a subjunctive. (laughs) She didn't know. She didn't know if she'd be able to reach Jesus. She didn't know if she'd be able to get through the crowd. She didn't know, uh, but perhaps someone might discover her and recognize her as being a woman who was unclean. And all of a sudden, there'd be a wide circle around her and they would, you know, drive her from Jesus. She didn't know if she would be able to get to him. But then the last part of that sentence, ooh, the consequent there. The apotheosis of that sentence says, I will be made healed. I will be healed. I will be made well. And that's the indicative. She knew that if she could get to Jesus, she would be made well. And that's her confidence. That's her hope. And then finally, she she makes the contact. Verse 27, she comes up behind Jesus in the crowd And all of a sudden, following seven consecutive participles, there is our first indicative verb, and it is the verb hapto. She touched his garment. In Greek, it really pops out, you know, because you've got all these participles where not much is happening. We're just being told about her circumstances. Then all of a sudden, somebody does something. She touches Jesus. And when she makes that connection, When she makes that contact, his healing power flows into her body and she is instantaneously and completely, permanently, perfectly healed. And she feels it. She knows it. There's no question in her mind that she has been healed when she connects with Jesus. She makes that saving, healing touch. Well, the Lord then turns around and asks a question. Now, by the way, as you read this text, I don't think she stole a miracle from Jesus. And I don't think the Lord turns around and says, who touched me? Because he didn't know. I think all of that is for her benefit and for our benefit. So a lot of times the Lord asks questions that he knows perfectly well what the answer is. He's asking the question so that we will think about the question. And so he can answer it for us. So the Lord turns around and says, who touched me? The disciples who are his handlers, his security team, making the way through the crowd, the secret service of the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry, they're trying to get him through the crowd. And the Lord turns around and says, who touched me? And the disciples said, wow, John, weren't you supposed to be covering that side? No, Peter, you've got the left side through this. So they're at... And Jesus says, who touched me? And they say, oh, come on, Lord. Look at the crowd. We can barely keep people from touching you. Sometimes I think that the Lord is just messing with the disciples. And this may be one of the times that he's just messing with them. But he turns around, he says, who touched me? And the scripture says that the woman comes. And and immediately it says that she comes in fear and trembling. What was she afraid of? Was she afraid that... She had been discovered and maybe she had made him unclean because she had touched him. Was was she afraid that she had done something wrong and and maybe the blessing that she knew she had received would be taken from her? We don't know. But she comes in fear and trembling. Those words also can describe uh, a rightful awe that we should all have of God. But she comes and she falls down before him and here comes her confession. It says, she told him the whole truth. 
<laughs> I love that. She just tells it. She, she, she doesn't try to hide anymore. Uh, she doesn't shrink back. She, she goes to him and she falls down in, in respect and awe in front of him. And she pours out her heart. She tells him the whole long story. And then after her confession comes, the Lord's proclamation of cleansing and the comfort that she had always sought and had never found. And he says to her something wonderful. He says, Thugater, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You're healed. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. What a wonderful thing for this woman to hear. Now, I believe this woman came to Jesus not only with a healing faith, but a saving faith because he addresses her as daughter through Gater. Actually, this is the only time in, this is the only woman Jesus addresses in the New Testament record. It's the only record we have of him addressing any woman as daughter. It's in the figurative, she's not literally his daughter, but in the figurative sense, it's a term of affection and concern and acceptance. And he turns to her and said, oh, daughter, your, your faith, your faith has made you well. And the word that Jesus uses there for well is sozo, which about a dozen times or so is used for to be made well, but 92 times it's used in the New Testament for saving someone. Your faith has not just made you well, your faith has saved you. Now, is that double meaning intended here? I don't know for sure, but I think so. The Lord embraces her by calling her daughter. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. So there you have the story. This woman comes with a terrible condition that brought her to a crisis she comes with a confidence that Jesus can fix that problem, that Jesus can give her the cleansing and comfort that she sought, but which had always evaded her. And she comes to him and she confesses and she makes that contact and Jesus heals her and sends her away whole in body and soul. I identify with this woman because I've been there not in her particular circumstance with her disease. But I remember a September night when I was still just a boy in a revival meeting. When I came to the realization that even though I was still young, I, had, I was not a drug dealer or alcoholic when I was eight years old. I, you know, I had not murdered 15 people, and so I don't have a very dramatic conversion story. I was a Christian boy who grew up in a Christian home, but I came to that place at a very young age that I understood that I was a sinner who needed a Savior. And so I walked the aisle one night at a revival meeting in my home church, and I confessed my faith in Christ I was baptized into him. I was added to the church. And, and so that's the first time that I reached out and made a connection with the Savior. 
And I've made a connection again and again and again throughout my life. And sometimes uh, I don't need to make the connection for salvation again. But boy, I need to make that connection for all kinds of gifts and graces that I need just to survive and live life. There have been times when, uh, I, as a young father, uh, my wife and I had twin boys born three months prematurely, and five days later, I held one of those boys in my arms as he died in the middle of the night in a neonatal intensive care unit. And I remember that night holding that dead child in my arms and just weeping uncontrollably, and as if I thought my chest would burst open and my heart would melt out onto the floor. And as I knelt there, I, I reached out to lay hold of the Savior. I reached out to grab him and to hold on to him because there wasn't anything else. I held a dead child with one hand, and with the other, I reached out to lay hold of the Savior and felt in that moment, I, I didn't see a vision. I didn't hear a voice. It wasn't like that, but I felt as if this giant pair of wings had reached down to enfold me. And I, I had this sense that that child, though I held his lifeless body, that the soul of that child had been lifted out of my arms and by a pair of much stronger arms and had been taken to a place much safer and warmer than I could ever provide as his dead here on earth. I touched the Savior. Five years ago, uh, I noticed that uh, I started to develop a lump in my left cheek. Actually, it turned into quite a big knot and went to see my doctor and learned that I had a tumor in my parotid gland, salivary gland, and uh, I'd have that removed. I hope this picture is not too stark and ugly, but that's a, that's a photo of me right after the surgery. Yeah, that's a, actually, they did pretty nice work. If you ever catch me at just the right angle, you can see where the trace of the scar is on the left side of my face. It started at the top of my ear and came down and then made this big long curve here so they could open up my entire face. I'm happy to say that the tumor was benign, but here's what frightened me to death. That tumor was right there in that part of the face where there's a huge facial nerve that comes out of the skull right there and it branches out across your face and it controls the movement of your mouth and your lips and your facial expressions and all kind, your blinking and all kinds of things. I've had two callings in my life. One of them has been as a teacher, the other is a preacher. And if you've noticed lately that both of those require the full use of that facial nerve. And so I was scared to death that that nerve might be damaged. There was some risk of that given where the tumor was. And I cried out and reached out and laid hold of the Savior for my fears. For my friend Fred Corder, he first made that contact after spending 25 years of his life as an alcoholic. Fred. I didn't win Fred to Christ, but I met him right after he came to faith in the Lord, and I had the privilege of baptizing him, and he became part of our church. But Fred, for 25 years, was an alcoholic. Fred said after a while, he began to drink to forget the things he did while he was drinking. And, uh, and Fred's job didn't help. He was an a executive for the Seagram's Corporation. And so one year, uh, Fred was sent out to San Francisco to run the Seagram's Hospitality booth at the Super Bowl. <laughs> if you could imagine how much liquor that would, would have associated with it. 
And Fred said that when he checked into the hotel in San Francisco, when he arrived, these were the old days when you had a, a key for your room and he had a, an actual key. And in his other hand, he had the key to the mini bar in the room. And Fred said that he had tried AA several times. He had played with church off and on, but nothing had ever really taken and nothing had really ever helped Fred. He believed himself to be a hopeless alcoholic. And Fred said that that night, for some reason, he had cried out for help and, and he said he came to the door and he put the key in the door. And before he turned the key, Fred said in just a moment, he knew that if he turned that key and went into that room with the mini bar key in his hand, Fred knew he would do exactly what he had done a hundred times before. He would open the mini bar and start drinking right then. Fred said he just knew it. And somehow that night, Fred said he knew it was just so vivid. He knew that if he did that, he would never, ever turn back. He would die a hopeless alcohol, alcoholic. And so Fred said that he fell down on his knees in front of that hotel door with his hand still on the key in the door and the minibar key still in his other hand. And Fred said he began to cry out to God. He said he wasn't very good at it. He didn't know how to pray. He said, oh God, oh God, uh, or hello, uh, to whom it may concern. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, whoever, however, Lord, oh dear Jesus, oh dear God, help, help. So he's, he's, he just said he just cried, at, help me, oh God, help me, oh God, help me. Uh, Fred didn't see her because his eyes were closed, but he said that he, as soon as he got up, he found a cart from a maid that had been abandoned in the hallway, that she had fled uh, at the sight of this man crying out. And, and Fred said that he, he got up, pulled the key out of the door, went downstairs and slid the mini bar key back to the desk. And he said, I won't be needing this. Fred didn't drink a drop that weekend. When he got home, he got back into AA and he looked for a church. And I found him then. Fred had been helped from a fatal attraction because in his desperate moment, he had done the same thing that the lady in the story did. He had reached out and he had touched the only power that could save him. You'll always need him I've reached out and touched him as a young pastor needing wisdom, as a young father in grief needing help. I've reached out and touched him as a sinner struggling with fatal attractions. I've reached out actually just about every day of my life. There has been some moment in that day that I've had to stop and do what the woman in this story does. I've had to reach out and to touch, to connect with the only power that can save and redeem and cleanse, with the only power with real wisdom, the only power with real help, the only power that can make us right, and it's the Lord Jesus. Let me ask you today, what, where are you? I, you know, even in seminary, Dr. Patterson tells us, and, and every year we discover, even in the middle of the school year, that there are students in our student body, people who, maybe you're a church member, maybe you were baptized somewhere, maybe, but even right now, there may be some of you that, that you've never really and truly deep in your heart at that place where you make these ultimate decisions, 
You've never really surrendered to Jesus Christ. And there may be some of you here today who need to do that. Let me plead with you. Don't leave this room today. It's full of professors and staff and other people, full of fellow believers. There are people here that would love to pray with you and for you if you've never asked the Savior to come and to save you. Don't let this day go by without doing that. Maybe you're already a believer and you've been saved and you're sure about that, but you struggle with some fatal attraction. Maybe what you do at night late in front of your computer or with your phone is not something you'd want all the rest of us to know about. Or maybe you meet with people that you wouldn't want the rest of us to know that you meet with. And maybe you drink things you shouldn't drink. And maybe you do things you should Maybe there's some fatal attraction that has its talons in you. Let me encourage you to come to the Savior. And to receive the cleansing and the freedom that, that you long for. Maybe just right now, school is just tough, and maybe life is tough. And figuring out how to take care of your family and go to school and pay the bills and study all of those Greek and Hebrew things and all the other stuff, maybe that's just hard right now. And you just need to reach up and ask the Savior to take your hand and to lead you through it. Whatever it is, I'm here to tell you that what Jesus did for this woman with her problem in this story He stands ready to do every single moment with every one of us. How about it? Could you make the connection this morning? Could you reach out with your heart as this woman did? Reach out and say, oh, Lord Jesus, I need help with you fill in the blank. Oh, Lord Jesus, Take my hand, heal me, let your power come. Make the connection. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, as this unnamed sister reached out and received from you the cleansing and the comfort that she had nowhere else, would you help each one of us to have the courage, the grace, the will to reach out and connect with you today? that you might cleanse and comfort us.